this podcast has been brought to you by our sponsors, Merck. Hello and welcome to Food to Go. In this episode, we're talking about hygiene. We have some very exciting guests coming up, but first I wanted to have a little quiz. Josh, hello. Hello, Bethan. Yes, looking forward to your uh, test of my knowledge. Start throwing <laughs> some questions at me. Right. Okay. Josh, question number one. What does HACCP stand for? Easy. Hazard Analysis Critical Control Point System. Um, so it's essentially a protest control system that identifies where hazards might occur in the food production process. Um, and it puts into place stringent actions to take um, to prevent the hazards from occurring. So is that satisfactory? All, all, all three marks for that one? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Should we should we see if um, the production team can fork out for some little dings? Yeah, yeah. I, w- I want a buzzer, like Joshua Minton, New Food, for right. on the University Challenge. Yeah, if we oh, okay. can, that'd be great. Okay. So okay. I'll throw one at you then, Beth. When was HACCP first used? Oh, okay. Um, 1960s, I'm going to say. You're absolutely bang on. Oh, absolutely yeah. spot on. Do you know? Do you know why it was used though? I think it's something to do with space. Yeah, it is. Cool. We've been revising. Absolutely oh, spot on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so essentially, the Pillsbury Company um, was producing the foods that the astronauts took in the Apollo program um, during the space race in the 1960s. And Hassett was sort of first introduced to make sure that all the food they ate was um was safe because if there's one thing you don't want when you're thousands of miles away from the earth it is food poisoning so it yeah, kind of makes that, sense that it was introduced yeah that would oh i've never even considered that that would be awful wouldn't it Imagine yeah it's not ideal is it if you're in sort of the, the polar rocket hurtling towards the moon and then eat some bad chicken it's not really what you yeah, want yeah listeners josh and i also recently got given some space food have you tried it yet uh i haven't no i'm Want to take the beef burgundy onto my dad, who's a chef, who's expressed an interest in trying it. So I'm, I'm waiting for a, for a, for an afternoon to go over and try the beef burgundy on with him. Um, have you deciphered what yours are? Because listeners, that all the packets are in French, which neither of us speak. But beef burgundy on is pretty um, universal, so I could decipher that one. Yeah, yeah. I am. Um, oh, is it? Is the other one creme brulee? I don't know. I think I just said a dessert. It might not be. <laughs> have you tried yours? no not yet it's sitting on the countertop it's one of those awkward things because i i really want to try it but at the same time it's like a full-on free course meal so you know when you're just like what if it what if you know do i just go and say that's going to be my dinner one night or do i then just cook it and try sample some bits i don't know i'm I'm very unsure (laughs) interesting fact so airplane meals and i assume the same for astronauts are actually deliberately quite taste quite different to what we have sort of down here on a uh, on terra firma because your taste buds react differently under pressure so it could be that it tastes not that great down here but who knows when you uh, escape the earth's atmosphere it might be a uh, michelin star quality when i next go on uh, a mission me and uh, richard branson <laughs> yeah you and elon tuck into a bit yeah. of beef burgundy on yeah. yeah yeah absolutely you don't be like come on i'll go on your next mission i've got the uh, i've got the goods <laughs> let's move on all right, yeah, definitely, definitely time to move on. Okay, well, um, we've demonstrated our expertise, um, but as usual, we've got some true experts, and I am delighted to introduce our guests to tell us a little more. 
Hello, Dimitri and Jim. Welcome to the show. Uh, can we start by having a little introduction from yourselves? Uh, Dimitri, uh, could you please tell the listeners who you are? Uh, hi, from me, Beth. Uh, so my name is Dimitri Tavernarakis, and um, I work for Mondelez. I'm the global lead for hygienic design uh, of the plants. So within my responsibilities is to monitor the market and uh, international standards make sure that we apply the best possible way um, the rigorous regulatory requirements when it comes to infrastructure, to the, the buildings and the, the equipment uh, design requirements and, and considering the ways of work and the products that we produce. Thank you so much, Dimitri. And hello, Jim. Hi there, Beth. And so, yeah, I'm uh, Jim Hartley. I'm the Global Sanitation Lead for Mondelez. So I look after uh, sanitation, good manufacturing practice, pest control and hygienic design for the for the global group uh, based in the UK. Um, and I've been with Mondelez for the last nearly three years. Uh, and in, in addition to that, I'm also uh, advisory board member of the European Hygienic Engineering Design Group. So very happy to be here today. Thanks so much, Jim, and thanks, Dimitri. We're also extremely happy to have you on board. Um, obviously, me and Beth gave an absolutely sterling definition of HACCP earlier on in the show, but um, it's probably best to hear from the experts as well. So, Dimitri, if we just start with you, what is HACCP and, and why is it important? So, yeah, HACCP uh, stands for uh, Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Points. It's one of numerous uh, methods of doing a risk assessment. Um, it's, uh, it's primarily used in the food industry and uh, with the HASP process, we identify any possible risk for uh, um, any ha food hazard that may occur within the food production process. And the, 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 the benefit of the HASP uh, protocol is that it can be used from, as we said, from farm to, far to fork. So at any stage of the supply chain, uh, uh, we we assess any 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 potential hazard, uh, the likelihood of the hazard, and uh, we establish controls where they are needed, and uh, uh, strict documentation and verification protocol that the control works. So the need for uh, strong hazard management in the food industry is evident, but the importance of these principles were definitely brought to light more so during the pandemic. So, Jim, from your experience, can you describe the impact that this has had on your food safety plan and internal procedures? You know, did any new efficiencies become apparent? So I think it's important to cast a mind back um, what would be 18 months, I suppose, to the start of the pandemic. And in the early stages of that, there was really very little known about the virus, but it was pretty quickly established that this was not a virus that would present a food safety risk. And, and that was really important from a HACCP perspective, because it meant that um, beyond putting additional controls in, certain, in terms of certain prerequisites, what we were really dealing here with was a public health issue as opposed to a food safety issue. Um, so, so the case really was made very early that as it was a, a rel relatively delicate virus, that standard cleaning procedures such as detergents and alcohol-based hand rubs would likely be effective, 
albeit you know at an enhanced frequency and and of course other controls were enhanced at the time uh, but more from a, a a personal protective perspective so mask wearing social distancing one-way systems those sorts of things um so although they were in place and they were in place for the safety of employees i wouldn't expect to see them therefore listed within the food safety plan um necessarily i think in, in terms of efficiencies um i'd probably focus on the enhanced importance of importance of hand hygiene and cleaning in the mindset of factories, because often the prerequisite controls might not have as high a priority as I think they deserve. And they're sometimes taken for granted. But I think for sure the pandemics focus people's attention on, on the importance of cleaning, hand washing and zoning as, as, as a few critical topics. Dimitri, one for you. Um, just in light of, of, what, of what Jim said there, how did the pandemic influence your HACCP infrastructure? So basically, it is required any food manufacturing process to have a, a, a very strict and, and, and clear uh, production procedure. And uh, within this procedure, you identify any potential hazards. Uh, within those uh, hazards, you also investigate possible hazards from, 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 the, from the employees. Uh, from the from the infrastructure, as I said earlier, um, which means that any changes to any of those to the infrastructure or the, the employees, the ways of work of the employees, uh, it is required to go back to visit again your food safety plan and your HASP and see if you introduce any additional hazards and make sure that you capture them. So can I clarify what you mean by the term infrastructure, Dimitri? Sure. So uh, hygienic design, it is a, a prerequisite of, of the HASP plan. A good hygienic design uh, results into the less as possible controls. A uh, very well hygienically designed facility requires, uh, has much significant, much less hazards which means much less controls. Um, and uh, in order to address the um, hygienic design requirements of building of the infrastructure, uh, we, we look through different principles. Uh, and for example, uh, elements of the building, like the walls, like the drain, the roof, uh, the, the, the utility areas, like the locker, room, the locker rooms, the offices, uh, the air that is used in the in the field in the building, the flow of the air from one area to the other, all these um, constitute what we do when we do hygienic design of the infrastructure. So by infrastructure we mean the building and the equipment that are facilitated within the building in order to uh, deliver the final product. Oh, thank you so much, Dimitri. <laughs> Thanks, Dimitri. Um, we're also going to talk about hygiene monitoring and disinfection as well um so jimmy in, in that light what what are the biggest challenges you've faced over the last 18 months in regards to hygiene monitoring and disinfection control so i i think there are really there are two groups of challenges and i think you know there's a there's a technical challenge and there's a mindset challenge when it comes to these things so so from i mean from a technical perspective um We've needed to continually working to improve the quality of the cleaning that we're doing while also supporting the, 
business and social priorities of doing this in the most efficient way possible. So, and those challenges have always been there and they've continued. So things like reducing time, reducing water use, reducing energy use, reducing chemical use, these are all important challenges for us to meet. And we can do this in a number of ways, including improved hygienic design, which, you know, Dimitri has already started to talk about, and I'm sure we'll talk about more in this in this podcast. But on the second on the second set of challenges, the mindset perspective, um, sometimes cleaning and the related monitoring can be seen as adding no value or little value to the production process because of course the line stopped while it's doing it often there's a lot of pressure to clean as quickly as possible so that you can get back on with what you would call productive time or what you know or indeed while you're mate, waiting for monitoring results and, and i think that um this is where things things such as having the right culture having the right education comes in to make sure that people and managers understand the importance of the cleaning activities making sure that people carrying it out they're supported they're given the resources to do it well and these sorts of things help to overcome kind of that mindset challenge that I talked about Mm, mm. I would definitely explore that idea of, of culture later Jim um you know so Let's talk about when we're introducing new products to market. How does the review of your disinfection process or hygiene monitoring come into play there? Well, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, we have in, in Mondelez, in case people aren't that familiar with our products, primarily we're, um, we're, we're a chocolate and, and baked goods company. So we're the big, biggest snacking company in the world. But we also we also have powdered beverage and we have... Um, um, cheeses and these sorts of things as well so higher higher food safety risks but for many of our products they've got very similar characteristics from a food safety perspective and so when we're introducing new products to market beyond you know a verification exercise there can often be relatively little to do because they're very similar but but where it does get much more complicated is if we're having to manage products with new allergenic components um, particularly if we're having to manage those with changeovers or, or where there are particular regulatory controls or restrictions. And that can happen where you're producing for different export markets. You know, uh, an ingredient might be permitted in one market, but it's prohibited in another. So, so for these sorts of um, more complex um, processes, what we, what we need to do there is to do a formal validation of the sanitation process. And that's making sure that we can get the right level of clean but we can also get it carried out in a re in a reproducible way, so time after time. And again, for some production lines, that can be fairly straightforward. Um, but for others, particularly older lines, ones that aren't hygienically designed, that um, you know may involve tearing down the equipment. Um, it will typically involve analysing rinse water samples, taking swabs, and these sorts of things. And of course, doing that a number of times until we're confident in the cleaning processes. Thank you so much, Jim. You you mentioned there, um, and can I just say, we, we definitely know who Mondelez is. I'm a big chocolate fan. <laughs> um, but can I just ask, you mentioned there, you know, um, some of these products being a little bit more higher risk, you know, like dairy. Why is that? Well, I mean, it's to do it's to do with the stability, the stability of the product. So if you if you compare um if you compare a baked product like an Oreo cookie or something like that, um, it's you know it's it's got a low water activity, which means it's you know it's ambient stable. It goes through a you know a very um, high temperature heat process to bake the cookie. 
So all of these things really contribute towards it being relatively stable from a food safety perspective. But if you're looking at something like a like a cheese product, um, particularly if it's a fresh fresh dairy product, we have we have some of those types of products in 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 some of some of our European markets. Um, they are you know they, they they have a shelf life of only a few days, um, and again you know often that's driven by the water activity, it's driven by the acidity of the product, these sorts of these sorts of things. So it's really down to the food the food chemistry really of the of the particular products which which dictates the risks. Thank you so much, Jim. We are now going to hear from our sponsors, the Life Science Business of Merck. I'm joined by Joy Cruz, the Global Product Manager for Environmental Monitoring Franchise with a focus on food and beverages, and Claudia Bourne, Field Marketing Specialist in Food and Beverages. Welcome, Joy and Claudia. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Um, really happy to have you here. So I want to start this um, interview by uh, asking you, Claudia, could you give me an overview of disinfection control and hygiene monitoring? You know, who needs to know about this and why is it important? Yeah, so disinfection is the reduction in levels of bacteria to a safe level that does not compromise food safety. This is usually done by the use of chemicals such as disinfectants and sanitizers intended for food use or by heat means hot water or steam. Industrial food production is governed by relatively strict legal regulations to protect consumers against poor hygiene and food poisoning, but also to protect manufacturers against claims for damages and shutdowns. So in other words, those in charge of food production and catering need to decide what needs to be cleaned and disinfectant and how this should be done and also controlled. From a hygiene monitoring standpoint, the whole process of hygiene monitoring is about cleaning verification. So as you're producing food and food is coming into contact with different surfaces and pieces of equipment, that equipment and those surfaces need to be properly cleaned and sanitized before additional production runs or batches of product come across those surfaces. If the surfaces are not adequately removed of food residue, then that residue can be a source for potential cross-contamination as additional production batches are made. Thank you so much um, for that lovely introduction, uh, Claudia and Joy. So, Claudia, why do we need in-process disinfection control? Mm -hmm. Disinfectants are reactive and can change their concentration quickly. So it's important to measure their concentration right away. That means on the spot. That can be washing solutions for raw materials like vegetables or rinsing of packaging material. After equipment cleaning, where the absence of potential residues is monitored, or in the filling line of beverages. But it is also important to check the concentration of the disinfectant itself. So therefore, you'll find different measuring ranges available to test it, for example, for peroxide or parasitic acid. So high measuring ranges to measure the concentration of the disinfectant, if it's still high enough to provide adequate disinfection, but also low measuring ranges to measure residues. Okay, and what 
is the difference between using liquid tests and test strips for disinfection control? So both liquid tests and test strips are in principle available as visual, means semi-quantitative methods without the involvement of an instrument like our MQuant range, but also as quantitative methods, means with either um, our SpectroQuant photometric solutions or with a test strip reader like our ReflectoQuant solutions. However, some tests are only available with one method, while others can be obtained both as a test strip or as tests with chemical reagents. So the first decision which needs to be made is if a semi-quantitative result is sufficient or a quantitative result is wanted. Then measuring range and the matrix of the sample are relevant. So as a rule of thumb, chemical tests with reagents can be more sensitive, but they also require the sample to be clear, which involves sample preparation. Test strips are not as sensitive, but are more tolerant concerning the matrix. Thank you so much. Um, and, and before we move over to, to Joy, um, Claudia, what if I wanted to test in dairy products that are opaque? Will that work? Mm -hmm. If the sample is opaque, then testing with strips is still possible. That's the great advantage of strips. You don't need a clear sample, so sample prep can be skipped in certain cases, which makes it very convenient for quick checkups. So even color can be compensated in some cases if you measure with a strip reader, like with the Aquaflex instrument, and use a plank strip for compensation. There are simple dedicated application protocols available that give advice if a sample preparation is necessary. These applications can be executed with minimum equipment and are also easy to follow. So, Joy, um, let's talk about ATP testing. When should this be carried out? You know, before cleaning, during, after? Yeah, so ATP testing is a very common method in food and production facilities for verifying the hygiene practices and sanitation practices have been effectively performed. In those environments where they're testing food contact surfaces, the ATP test is going to give them a, an indication a quantitative indication uh, based on the reading of microbial contamination on those surfaces. And typically any levels of ATP detected above a standard passing range are usually associated with food residue because of these cleaning and sanitization practices. Now there are different use cases for when you use ATP. Um, there are customers that will test after cleaning but before sanitizing the surfaces and then there are customers who will clean and sanitize and test after sanitization. They'll do that for ATP testing. It really depends on the time constraint that a customer is under. Uh, remember, when you have production equipment down, you're not making money. And so the emphasis is on how quickly but safely we can clean and clear these lines to get production started back up. With uh, the MVP Icon system from Merck, we 
provide the flexibility to do ATP testing either after cleaning or after cleaning and sanitizing. And one of the reasons we can do that is the special proprietary formulation of our ATP swabs, which contains a special buffer composition that will allow the measurements to be performed without effect from standard food grade ranges of sanitizers. Thank you so much, Joy. And you know, how often then should one conduct ATP testing? As far as how often one should conduct ATP testing, ideally that's done uh, daily if you're producing daily. So from a workflow standpoint, after you are finished producing product, you have a dirty line, you have dirty equipment, you immediately clean and then test for ATP. And you usually don't want to wait because you want to make sure that the ATP tests clearly capture the surface cleanliness on those food contact surfaces. And if you do wait, uh, some will wait for a little bit of of drying time. But if you do wait, the more time you wait, there could be other environmental elements like uh, dust in the air that settles on these surfaces, which may contribute to a higher ATP level, depending on how bad the air quality is in an environment. So ideally, you want to test for ATP uh, as soon as possible after cleaning and sanitizing. So the question is, can ATP testing replace conventional microbiology tests? These days, the answer is typically no. ATP testing (laughs) is specifically, they would love to because it would save time and and costs, Mm. but they're really complementary. The ATP test, even though you are getting a numerical value for the amount of ATP that's detected. And that amount of ATP is a direct correlation to the amount of, of microbial content on those surfaces. It is a very broad type of measurement, whereas the more conventional environmental tests that they do in parallel will give them more specific determinations on things like coliforms. And those conventional tests are typically conventional methods. They require culturing and and growth. So they're not as quick and rapid. And in opposition, the ATP test is is a less than 18-second reading. And so they are able to, to take those readings, quickly determine if a line is clean and ready for reuse, and start up production again. So they are very much complementary, and ATP testing cannot replace conventional. Well, thank you so much, um, Joy, and of course, Claudia as well, and the life science business of Merck. We now return to the main podcast. So, Dimitri, what, um, what official standards do you need to adhere to when it comes to, to HACCP and, and when it comes to hygiene and sanitation? Yeah, sure. So we have to say at this point that the food industry, it's, it's a highly regulated and very strict industry. 
And considering the advancements, the technological advancements for microbial detection, uh, for example, uh, it becomes even more challenging for food producers. Um, the international standards, the standards that are used, uh, we can say that they are driven from uh, on a higher level from the World Health Organization and the, the, the famous Codex Alimentarius, which drives the uh, ISO 22000, basically. And uh, coming down to uh, national, regional, national authorities or local authorities who might have uh, food safety requirements uh, uh, or at the place that the food is manufactured or at the place that the food is consumed. Uh, the challenge for a food manufacturer, especially like Mondelez and international manufacturer, is to make sure that they are aware of, or we are aware of all the, the standards that are applicable at the, at the, at the point of uh, manufacturing and also at the point of consumption. Um, um, all, all manufacturers of food are obliged to be audited and to be certified by those uh, the CPOs. Uh, SQF like PRC and, uh, or FSSC, for example. Um, Mondelez, for example, globally, we are certified by FSSC 22000. And uh, all of the CPOs are getting their guidelines from the Global Food Safety Initiative, GFSI, which is, uh, it's, it has a significant role uh, globally in establishing a standard approach uh, and uh, from 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 all different uh, food manufacturers. Brilliant. So, so with that in mind, um, how do you help create a safer environment for both consumers and and employees? I suppose a safe environment is even more challenging, considering that the food has its own its own regulatory challenge. Uh, having a facility that is manufacturing food you still have the, the health and safety of your employees, of your people that are producing this food. So it, it, it's quite tricky, and to be honest, and sometimes we are challenged with um, requirements that are kind of um, are contradicting one another or the slight conflicts. And uh, for example, uh, equipment which are safe for the employees, the ultimate safe machines are the ones that are so well protected that are very difficult to clean. So making an ultimately safe machine would make it at the same time time consuming to sanitize it. Having a machine which is very easily to sanitize could be could expose uh, the employees, the operators into health and safety hazards. So different disciplines of experts need to work together and put on the table all the different applicable standards and requirements, make a proper um, risk assessment, or let's say of the, of the manufacturing process, and make sure that the highest standards are applied within some level of, 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 of a trade-off, let's say. Uh, the, the challenge from my experience is that you can never have a hundred percent word by word, each standard applied, um, because there, there might be there might there might be challenges that you need to rely on the on the culture aspects. You need to rely on the on the people uh, or the, the ways of work, um, the training, the education. They, they very much affect the the overall 
uh, environment, operational environment. Absolutely. It sounds very much to me like it is um, a case of, of collaboration is key. And in the spirit of collaboration, um, Jim, do you have any advice for companies that might be wishing to improve their food safety culture? What um, what kind of techniques have worked well at, at Mondelez? So, I mean, we, we started to touch on it earlier and, and food safety culture is a, is a really important topic. And in fact, it's now you know explicitly being called out in some certification standards. Um, and I think I, I think the same type of activities that work for a health and safety culture, many of them are applicable for food safety culture as well, because they are genuine, you know, generally about culture and how you get um, a compliance culture, which is one of the things I, I talk about quite a lot. So, so, so really, I mean, one of the things is about making sure that there's, there is a genuine and visible leadership commitment to food safety culture, which is something that we, we have in Mondelez. It's, you know, we're very, very fortunate that our, our, our global CEO is committed to this. Uh, you know, we have a strong food safety organization within, within Mondelez. So we have that, um, that leadership commitments there, but it's not something that you can put in place in a few months. It's something that needs to be built up over years. So, so one of the, I guess, tips as such that I would give is that, that there's a need for long-term consistent leadership on this topic. It's it's not an initiative. It's not something you can try to do in a year. It's not really a project. Um, and how I describe it is that it's a way of walking rather than the destination, and and it takes time to learn. To learn how to walk, and and there, there's got to be an accountability for food safety at all levels, and the ability to call things out when when th- things are not happening in line with the expected cultural goals, and and that might be in terms of implementing some food safety KPIs and making sure that those are visible. Um, it might be in terms of prioritising investment in food safety infrastructure, ensuring. Uh, delivery of training, communications to team, having food safety food safety committees, managing by walking around, carrying out behavioural discussions. So many of the things that people might be familiar with on, in, in a safety culture programme are absolutely applicable to a food safety culture programme. Um, ultimately, it's you, you know you've got it right when people do the right things when things go wrong. Um, and and that that piece kind of links in with trust because trust takes years to build, but it can be lost in a second through a, through a poor culture. So it is a it is that long term commitment to, to to this, which is 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 something that people shouldn't underestimate. I really love that expression, Jim. You know, you're doing it right if if you know people act appropriately when things go wrong. I I think I I didn't say that quite how you said it. Uh, you said it much more eloquently. <laughs> <laughs> But we get the gist. So let's talk about the the recovery from the pandemic. So in the UK here, as on, on the day that we record this, the restrictions have been eased. We no longer have to wear masks. Um, it's all it's all a bit strange. Um, so as we're recovering from the pandemic, could you tell us what changes to hygiene monitoring and disinfection control Mondelez has made um, to better prepare for future possible outbreaks? Okay, so I mean, as as I mentioned at the start, this pandemic has not been a food safety pandemic, but a public health pandemic. Um, 
that's not in any way to, to, to minimize it, but it's important to be clear about exactly what kind of risks we're trying to manage here. And, and, it, and in fact, you know, as we've gone through this last 18 months, when we first started, it was thought that the primary route of transmission was through contaminated surfaces. Um, and, it, and in fact, now it's it's pretty well established that the primary route of transmission is airborne rather than contaminated surfaces. And the, the WHO reports come out in the last couple of months really emphasizing that. And, and, and most of the research that I've seen is really emphasizing that, it, that it's about airborne transmission rather than contaminated surfaces. So quite different to where we started. Um, so, so what that what that really means is that um, you know there are some changes that we can consider in terms of in terms of our internal approaches. But I think whether it's whether it's COVID nineteen or whether it's an influenza or whether it's a, a different type of a different type of um, um, kind of um, outbreak, let's say, I think that there is there are always um, some fundamental things which make sense in food manufacturing and i think that this this pandemic has really reinforced the importance of certain good manufacturing practices such as proper hand washing so you know how many people two years ago knew that 20 seconds was the right time well people in food processing should have done but the general population probably didn't and i think now sort of 20 seconds for hand washing is a pretty well known uh, a pretty well known time scale um, and I think as, as well as hand washing, making sure that, you know, the thorough sanitation processes are in place, effective hygiene monitoring practices are in place. And, and really it's about reinforcing existing practices, um, probably more than putting in place new practices. I think one thing, um, that probably needs enhanced focus, um, not just in the food industry but generally is going to be the importance of air handling um, and that's certainly something that we're that we're um, looking at absolutely I think there's a lot of lessons that we've learned from this experience obviously it's been uh, a devastating um, what, 18 months or however long it's been I've I've lost count I think many people have but um, there's definitely been some some positives that we can take from it and I think you know, um, and and just some some new ideas as well. It will certainly be interesting to see how um, you know hygiene and disinfection does evolve in the future. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Beth, but I am still singing "Happy Birthday" when I wash my hands. So we'll see how long that that lasts. Um, it may well last to the end of the year. We'll we'll see. Um, as, as we're looking at the future, Jim, um, to finish off, what? What do future practices in hygiene monitoring and disinfection control look like to you? And as it is all a bit doom and gloom in the UK at the moment, please share a nice, hopeful vision for us and the listeners to finish off on. Okay, so so I think for 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 me in terms of vision for the future, what I'd like to think is going back to what I was just saying. I do genuinely think that at this point in time there is a raised level of awareness of the importance of GMP practices within the food industry and some general good practices in terms of public health more, more, more widely. Um, and I think if we look specifically at the, at the food industry, the, the way it's reacted over the last 18 months has, has been incredible. Um, you know, this has been a key industry with key workers in it. It's kept running throughout this pandemic. Um, and I think, you know, there's a huge... Um, 
you know, many people to thank for the, you know, the efforts that's been put in in terms of that. I think what I really hope is that we can take the enhancements and the ones that make sense and embed them for the long term. So as I say, you know, reinforcing hand washing, reinforcing sanitation practices, looking at air monitoring um, processes and, 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 and improvements, those sorts of things. Looking at those, embedding those for the long term, because that will benefit the, the consumer through improved food safety controls with or without there being a pandemic. And it, in, in fact, it makes for a better working environment for everybody with or without there being a pandemic. So they're the right things to do. So I think, you know, really focusing on the sanitation principles and practices, I think something sort of looking to the future, um, you know, thinking about as well automation for routine tasks, because that allows us to be focusing our sanitation specialists on deep cleaning activities so that we can take the routine things and allow people to then focus on the on, on the real deep cleaning activities. I think that that's that's a future practice that that I think it's 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 a direction that that um, I think the industry is going. And I think that that's, you know, that's important to, to continue looking at how we digitalize and how we automate for the future. Um, as I mentioned, reinforcing good, good hand hygiene. Um, Dimitri's touched on this a bit, but investing in hygienically designed equipment, because again, if, if equipment's well designed, hygienically designed, it's got to be safely designed for the employees as well. But if we've got hygienically designed equipment, it's easier to clean, um, which means that with or without a pandemic, it's it's going to be more efficient to, 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 to do sanitation activities on those. And, and as well, driving improvements in monitoring technology uh, to make sure that, you know, looking at, um, at rapid, rapid methods, getting getting information back in terms of the cleanliness of, of, of um, hygiene equipment, uh, maybe moving taking ATP and moving beyond that. So I think there's, there's there's real opportunities in terms of monitoring technology. And I think raising awareness and respect for the people carrying out sanitation tasks. So these are all these are all some of the practices, but also I think some of the some of the the good, if you like, that can come out of this 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 dreadful 18 months that we've all been through is that by doing the right sanitation activities, by having the right controls in place in place, it will make us stronger for the future, no matter what that future looks like. Absolutely, Jim. That is a positive thought to end on. Um, I think you're absolutely right. It's important that we don't waste the last 18 months, that we use it and we build on it. And um, fingers crossed, as an industry, we will do that. Um, Dimitri, did you have any final thoughts just before we wrap up? Yeah, sure. Um, just, just backing up on what Jim said, um, future of, of the industry and the, the digital uh, um, uh, innovations. Uh, I think there will be uh, a lot of improvements in, into this uh, area. I totally agree as well with Jim with the condition-based sanitation uh, approach and uh, data-driven decision-making systems uh, that would allow you digitalizing plants would allow you this vertical visibility within the organization. Uh, will enhance the decision-making process. Now, when it comes to um, uh, the, the, the overall food safety programs of or in, in the food industry, um, when it comes to food safety and consumer health, there is no competition between uh, food manufacturers. So we all work collectively, like uh, Jim mentioned, within the EHDG or GFSI, 
or in the National Association of Food Protection in the US. Uh, we all work collectively. We all face the same challenges. And the worst thing that anyone in the food industry wants is the trust in the food industry. It's not something that you would easily lose. And uh, that's the reason that we work collectively. Uh, all the companies, there's no competition in this space. Thank you so much, Demetria. And, and thank you, Jim, as well for your time. Um, what a brilliant half an hour. I learned so much, um, some really, really good points and a hopeful vision for the future from Jim, which is what we were we were all after. Thank you so much, guys. I hope to see you again on the podcast soon. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Absolutely echoing Joss's thoughts there. And thank you so much, Jim and Dimitri, for your time and your expertise. That was so interesting. I mean, it's always such a privilege to have experts on the show to give us insight into the topics which I think I think are perhaps taken for granted but are just so important absolutely I mean I, I could have listened to Dimitri and Jim talk talk for hours about food safety culture and that's not something that I might have said beforehand but so interesting and like you say every, every time we sit down for a meal or, or we open our, our packet of space food for example <laughs> Um, you do just take it for granted that all this stuff's been done um, but actually it's so much work and it takes so much thought behind the scenes um, mm. I thought Jim made a really poignant point at the end as well Beth I don't know about you but um, that idea of not wasting these 18 months it's been such a hard time I think every industry around the world can take something but the food industry in particular we have to use what we've learned in these last 18 months to make us stronger and make us more resilient going forward so I think that was such a poignant point from Jim and it's um certainly struck me it'd be something that sticks with me I think for for a good while yeah I I think that I hope that the lessons that we've learned don't get forgotten and you know once everything goes I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm doing air quotes normal um that's my fear I hope that we remember this and we keep in mind the lessons absolutely um do keep washing your hands because as I said in the podcast off, it might be just before we went on air, I've not had a cold or really been sick for 18 months. And I don't think that's a coincidence. So if we all keep washing our hands, then uh, hopefully we'll all be a lot healthier. No, but Josh, do you know what worries me is that that people had to be taught how to wash hands. And yeah, it's a bit frightening, isn't it? I, I, I was always a hand sanitizer person. I was always a, you know, a good, good time, maybe not, maybe not 20 seconds. But I was always a, you know, a lengthy hand washer, shall we say? Yeah, I think any any sort of society that needs posters up and how to wash your hands is a is in need of some health edu- public health education, shall we say? But, <laughs> but we've been provided that, so let's give people a chance. We have, we have, yeah. No, it's good. I'm I'm very happy that we've all become meticulous hand washers. That sounded Absolutely. really sarcastic, but I meant that very <laughs> genuinely. <laughs> well, I think that's time to to wrap up. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, Matt. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Keep an ear out for future episodes coming soon. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.